is I would invite you to turn to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. This morning we're going to look at the end of chapter 12 from verses 25 to 33. From what we've been used to in our pace, this is going to seem like a very short text. Because it's so short, I'm going to read it for you in its entirety. This is the very Word of God. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. In the twelfth month, that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we ask, O Lord, that you would open this text to us, that you would teach us from your word, that we would know you, that we would love you, and that we would love each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure there's really no difference. It's it's probably just as good. You may have heard these phrases in life as things go on. It happens when the wife sends the husband out to buy detergent for laundry. And the family is always used tied. And the husband is not quite so sure how the grocery store is laid out and he can't find it. And he he grabs a bottle of detergent, brings it home, and the wife raises her eyebrow and says, that's not what we use. Well, I'm sure it's just as good. And it was on sale. It was cheaper. It happens when mom decides to maybe save a couple of dollars on groceries. And she brings home a box of frozen pizza, and everyone looks at it and says, we've never had that brand before. Well, I'm sure there's no difference at all from Pizza Hut or anywhere else. You'll love it. And the kids kind of look at it and wonder if it'll make a good cardboard box later. You may have seen or think about it in 
Someone who's getting set to send a package for business. How did you send that? Did you send it UPS? No. FedEx? No. I sent it Marty's Courier Service. I'm sure it's just as reliable. You know, cut to the 30 seconds later in the commercial when the man's being fired for non-delivery. You see, these things happen in our lives. And they're funny, they're humorous. But when it comes to the things of God, when we say, you know, I'm sure it's just as good, there really isn't much difference at all. It's dangerous. It can even be deadly. It can destroy lives, families, nations. So that's what we're here to see this morning. As there's a new king in town. We saw last week that he was to be placed on the throne of the ten tribes by none other than the Lord himself. And Jeroboam comes to power and he begins instituting things. And from this lesson that our historian has given to us, I'd like us to see three things about idolatry. First, I'd like us to see idolatries start. Idolatries start not trusting God. That's where idolatry starts. Not trusting God. And then we see idolatries hold on a people. Not listening to God. It starts with not trusting and it moves to not listening. And then we see idolatries end. Which is replacing God. Not trusting God, not listening to God, and finally replacing God. So let us then take a look and see where our text takes us. Beginning here at verse 25, we see the start of idolatry in Jeroboam and in the kingdom of Israel. It's not trusting God. The first thing that I want you to see is that this problem, this difficulty, begins in a very specific place. It's not Bethel. It's not Penuel. It's not Shechem. It's the heart. That's where it begins. It begins in the heart of Jeroboam. Jeroboam had started out so well. It's not that he's an incapable man. He was so skilled that Solomon had brought him up through the ranks. He was obviously so skilled that the complainants against Rehoboam rallied around him. Could you represent us before Rehoboam? Plead our case. He's so skilled and capable that he becomes king over the ten tribes. And he is now solidifying his hold on this kingdom. That's what he does here by living in Shechem. He sets up a new capital. He fortifies a key city, Penuel. It's important strategically to defend against attacks from the east. You might also know it for, by a slightly different name with a little different spelling. Vowels in, Hebrews are we, in Hebrew is a little odd. This is the same place that's called Peniel in Genesis 32. It's where Jacob had the dream and wrestled with God. So Jeroboam is starting out very well. He's fortifying the capitals. He's getting ready to go. And we see where his problem begins. It begins in verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart. That's where all of this difficulty begins. I want you to put a mental mark in your Bible here. 
that as we see the pain and the suffering and the disaster in Israel in months to come, this is where it starts, with a king in his heart. Now, the Holy Spirit wants us to know this because he's speaking to himself. He said in his heart, our historian here has no way to know this. He may not even have been living at the same time as Jeroboam. But the Lord himself wants us to know that idolatry begins in the heart. That's where it starts. And this shouldn't surprise us because the reason Jeroboam's in power is because Solomon's heart went away from the Lord. In chapter 11, we saw it in verse 2, we saw it in verse 3, we saw it in verse 4 of chapter 11, that Solomon's heart was the problem. This should not surprise us. Perhaps one of the most famous Reformed quotes is from Calvin's Institutes, where he says that man's heart is a factory of idols. We take things and we turn them to our own desires. This is where the problem begins. And so it's important to start here with the heart, because everything that follows is a consequence of this trouble right here. It is not a legalistic thing to say, Jeroboam shouldn't have set up these calves. Jeroboam shouldn't have done this. He shouldn't have done that. You see, God is concerned about actions, but he wants to point us to the source of those actions. Jeroboam's actions that we're about to look at reveal his heart. So it starts with a heart problem. But it's not just a heart problem with Jeroboam. It's also a fear problem. And often you'll see these two things are related. A heart problem and now a fear problem. For look at what he says in his heart. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices, the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord. Now, I want you to think about this. He's been in power about 15 minutes. He's just had 10 of the 12 tribes rush to his banner. They've set up a new capital. There's building projects going on. God himself has promised him a kingdom. God's prophet has come and said this to him. You couldn't be more secure. And what is his response? This man of action, this man of integrity, this man of fear. I'm going to lose my kingdom. They're going to run away from me. Not just that, they're going to kill me. I've got to do something about this. I don't know what I might do. Where is his focus? It's on all of the circumstances that are around him. He's sitting there, practically staring the promise of God in the face, and he sees a boogeyman behind every corner of his circumstances. He's afraid. He is insecure. He wants to keep what he has, and he's afraid that he might lose it. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that unless you jumped through every hoop imaginable, your job wouldn't survive? Your church wouldn't survive? Your marriage wouldn't survive? You have to keep things together. That's what Jeroboam feels. He's afraid. But it's interesting what he's afraid of, though. He says, 
If these people go up and offer up sacrifices, then they will turn again to their Lord. And they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam. You see, what Jeroboam is afraid of, actually, is orthodoxy. That's what he's afraid of. You see, in our day, orthodoxy is a synonym for boring. It's not innovative. It's not hip. It's not now. But you see, orthodoxy scares the pants of Jeroboam. He's afraid of the royal person, Rehoboam, and the place of atonement, the temple. You see, that's where the people should go. They should go to the temple. That's where atonement is found. That's where God has placed his name. You see, Jeroboam is afraid that the people will do what God has told them to do. He doesn't find orthodoxy boring. He finds it a curb on his ambition. He finds it something that he can't control. And he doesn't like that one bit. Is that what you're afraid of at times? Are you afraid that if you don't cut corners ethically, taking things that don't belong to you, that you won't be able to make it financially? Are you afraid if you don't cover over some things that are going on in your marriage with some lies, that you won't be able to make it? That's how Jeroboam is. He wants to be in control. He's afraid. He's afraid that God will not keep his promise. You see, if you just look back one chapter, chapter 11, verse 38, God says to Jeroboam, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you. And I will build you a sure house, not a temporary house, not a shaky house, a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And Jeroboam hears those words and he says, not so much, Lord. Don't really think you're going to follow through. I better come up with another plan. You see, He doesn't even think now God is keeping his word. Look at how he speaks of Rehoboam. He says, their Lord, Rehoboam. Talking about his people. They'll go back to their Lord. Rehoboam's not their Lord. He is. Says who? God. He's afraid that God can't do what he said. And he's believing a lie. And this is where his idolatry starts. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust God in circumstances. He doesn't trust God in his promises. And that leads him to take action here in verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And we see idolatry's hold on Jeroboam in the north. Now they are not listening to God. They've shut God out and are speaking to each other. And the first thing that he's basically going to say is, enough already with the God worship. Let's move on to greener pastures. He's nervous. He feels out of control. And so what does he do? If we're honest, he does what 
Many of us, perhaps all of us do. We scheme. We think. We plan. We set pieces in place. We wonder for how we can handle contingencies. We try and get control because we don't think God is in control. And so he goes out and he gets advice. Now this should be music to your ears here from last chapter. When was the, what happened the last time somebody went out and got advice? Well, he blew ten twelfths of a kingdom in three days. Talking to the young Turks. He gets his advice. He gets pumped up. He says, that's a great plan. Let's go out. Now, Jeroboam, if anyone in all of Israel should understand not going for bad advice and listening to the Lord, it should be Jeroboam. He's just got ten tribes on a silver platter because Rehoboam did this. And he commits the same error, the same mistake. He goes out and he gets advice. And he says, I think I'll make two calves of gold. And then we'll talk to the people and tell them, no, don't go over there. Stay here. Stay here in our worship. Now, I want you to notice something. That Jeroboam's action here is more pious, in quotes, than Rehoboam's. Rehoboam is in your face. You think times were tough before? I'll bury you. You think my dad was bad? Catch a load of meat. Jeroboam papers it over. Well, it would be so nice if you could worship close to home. It would be so nice if we could build up this new national unity under these two calves. Look at what I'm doing for you. I'm helping you. I'm giving you calves. Not one place of worship, but two. That'll cut your commute time in half. Do you see how it sounds nicer? It sounds more pious, but it's the same thing at its core. It's the exact same thing. It's a distrust of God. It's a distrust of his word. And it's, I will do what I will do. Now, this should not be new to you. How long has it been that politicians have used religion to get power? Like millennia? Yes, Even before YouTube, kids, they did. Even before television, they did. You see, Jeroboam is trying to consolidate his power, and he wants to make God his big national resource. I'll use religion to consolidate power. That's what he's doing. And the irony here is is that Jeroboam thinks he can contain God. He thinks he can keep God contained. He thinks that he could be in control, that he could put God on a leash and walk him around. And we might imagine that Jeroboam, the efficient, effective chief worker of Solomon, may have been standing in the temple when Solomon prayed, as he did in chapter 8 and verse 29. Excuse me, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Maybe Jeroboam thinks he's smarter than Solomon. Well, one house can't contain God. Maybe two can. If I build one at Dan and one at Bethel. You see, 
Rehoboam's problem was that he presumed on God. He said, I can treat people however I want to and do whatever I want, and God has to back me up because I'm Solomon's son. Jeroboam does the same thing. God has to do what I want him to do. Why? Because I'm the king. Because he came to me with his prophet. He has to do for me. Now, I'm going to take a stab in the dark and say that none of you have ever been or will be a king of Israel. But I wonder if you, like me, are guilty of presuming upon God like Jeroboam did. Do you pray perfunctorily and just expect God to answer because he's supposed to? Because you prayed. You put the quarter in the slot. Do you expect God to bless your house because you're faithful at church? Do you expect God to lift you up in prestige because you read your Bible? Now, there's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, there's everything right with praying, being faithful to church, and reading the Bible. But God is not a cosmic butler. He doesn't give things to us simply because he owes us. And that's what Jeroboam thinks. Maybe, perhaps, even you're in a place today where you think God owes you heaven. Because you're a pretty nice guy. Or you're a pretty good gal. You're kind to people. Toys for tots at Christmas, you give double. You're nice to people in the mall. You're not nearly as bad as all these other people out here. You should get some credit for that. But you see... The scripture here and the scripture everywhere tells us that God does not owe us a thing. If anything, God owes us judgment. Don't presume upon the Lord. Jeroboam should have fled to the promise, the promise of the kingdom. You should flee to the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only place that safety is found. That's the only place where you can have happiness and joy and security. Don't pray assuming God is going to answer as you would have him. So Jeroboam thinks he could contain God, and he says, I'm going I'm to start a new worship here. It's a new start. There's an element of convenience here. Perhaps some of your translations give you the idea in chapter uh, 12, verse 28, that it's easier to worship at these two places than to go all the way up to Jerusalem. And that's a powerful argument. You ever had this argument with your kids? You have to go to a store far away or the airport? we got to go in the car all that time. It'll take forever. That's appealing to some people. Don't go up to Jerusalem. That'll take forever. There's a drive through window in Dan. There's a quick stop. You could do your sacrifices in 20 minutes and be gone in Bethel. But it's not just that. It's a new start. Because look at what verse 28 says. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Long enough. The the language there, actually the proper way maybe to think of it in an idiom is, enough already with this. 
Too much of this. You've probably said that to yourself at times. Enough already with the football. Enough already with the antiques. I'm headed up to here. And that's what Jeroboam is saying. He says, listen, come on. We got a new king. We got a new kingdom. We need a new religion. Let's be united. Let's be together. And isn't that, in a nutshell, the story of the American church? About every two years, it's enough already with the experiencing God. Let's go to the purpose-driven life. Enough already with the purpose-driven life. Let's go now with reaching out to people who are postmodern. Enough already with the postmodern. Let's go out with ministry to young people. Enough already with the young people. Let's reach seniors. And we recycle and remove every couple of years thinking we will find the magic that will take us up to the stars. You see, there's an appeal here. It's not just ease. There's an appeal to the people of Israel. They could be on the ground floor of something exciting and new. But it's not all new. Because you see, Jeroboam, to use an illustration or turn of phrase, he has his station set on the radio dial to the oldies. He's listening to the oldies. Why do I say that? This is brand new. No, he sets up two calves, actually two bulls. It's because in, in other languages, including Hebrew, you can have an animal or an object, and they can have forms that are either masculine or feminine. And this is a masculine form. It's male calves. It's bulls. And to anyone reading this at the time it was written, or to anyone who was there at the time, that would spark one thing in their mind. Baal worship. Not bull worship. Baal, double A, worship. You see, this is a Canaanite fertility deity. Because you see, the Canaanites thought they needed to get control of God too. And when you're a farming community, what's the thing you're most worried about? Will the crops grow? Can we eat? Will we starve? You might have thought about that too if you tried to go to Sam's and buy two big bags of rice this past month. You're worried about that. There's a whole crisis. It's on CNN. But here in this land, you die if there's not enough rice. So they sacrificed to a fertility symbol. And what could be bigger, more powerful, more masculine than a huge bull? And so Jeroboam is directly drawing a link to Canaanite worship, to Baal worship. Now, I want you to think about something, and this is, again, one of the advantages of going through a book. Right now is the seed. We might think of it as the first drip, drip, drip from the ceiling that will open up into a gusher when Ahab comes to the throne. See, now it's just look like Baal. Then it will be, let's worship Baal. Breaking up the worship of God. And it's not just Canaanite worship that he's trying to catch a hold of. He's also trying to pick up on the rich heritage of Israelite religion. What do I mean by that? Well, Bethel has religious overtones. Jacob was there. 
Dan also has religious overtones. Do you know who set up an alternative system of worship in Dan? Moses' grandson. In Judges chapter 18, verse 30. Just two generations from Moses, someone is leading false worship at Dan. So he's tying into this. This phrase should also be familiar to you. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That is, word for word, what Aaron said at the foot of Mount Sinai when he built the golden calf. I mean, Hebrew word for Hebrew word with vowel pointings and the whole nine yards. He's quoting Aaron. This is... He's deliberately trying to tie into old synchronistic practices. He's trying to give them oldies but goodies to make them feel good. The new Moses, remember he came out of Egypt to lead Israel out from captivity of Rehoboam, is now become the new Aaron. He builds a calf, he quotes Aaron, and he starts a new priesthood. He says, I've got it better than what God set up. I know what I'm doing. And he knows how to market it. He says, behold your gods. He doesn't say, behold, O Israel, the vain idols that will draw you astray and cause your children to be massacred by barbarians. No. He gives it very good marketing. It's like the way that we market self-serve gas. Do you remember that? Some of us are old enough to remember when you could get self-serve gas or full-serve gas. And self-serve was marketed as... It's faster. You could do it yourself and don't wait. It's a little bit cheaper. And now what happens? Can you get full-serve gas anywhere? No, and they charge you more. It's like the way the Mormons market their religion. You don't see the Mormons come on television ads and say, Hello, we're the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Our founder saw two golden tablets fall from heaven that he couldn't read until he found special sunglasses. We believe that men should have as many marriages as they should and that Jesus was born because God is a man who slept with Mary. And he, oh, by the way, he's the brother of Satan. No, they come on TV and say, we believe in family. We believe the family should stay together. We believe in values. We believe in the Bible and this other book, the Book of Mormon. They market it. That's what Jeroboam was doing. He's marketing it. And the new Moses becomes a new Aaron. And so we have a little bit of covenant breaking at Sinai, a little bit of deviant worship in Dan. And what's the end? Well, for Israel, it's ruin. This is the beginning of the end. What's the end then of idolatry? We've seen that its start is in not trusting God. Its hold is in not listening to God. But its end is in replacing God. And the obvious replacement is before our eyes. He sets up a whole new system. There's a new time for worship. Look at verse 32. He sets a new feast day. He replaces Pentecost. He says, we'll hold it at a different time. Probably we can get better caterers. We won't be competing. He sets up a new personnel for worship. He says, we'll get our own priests. And Levites are hard to come by these days. Oh, it doesn't really matter. We'll take anybody. Even though God has specifically said 
who the priest should be. And then he sets up his own place. Even though God has specifically said where he is to be worshipped at his temple. In verse 33 he says, oh, we'll do sacrifices at Bethel. I'm sure it'll be just as good as Jerusalem. And so he's competing with God. It's interesting here. As you look, it talks about the temple of the Lord. And then in verse 31, you see also temples on high places. That's actually that word for house. You remember we've seen it played off, temple and house. David says, I'll build you a house. No, I'll build you a house, says God. It's actually the house of the Lord against the house of the high places. It's a direct competition. This is like what you see. We just noticed this on Mason Road. You got Kentucky Fried Chicken, and they set up Hart's Chicken right down the road because they want to compete for the chicken business. Right there. That's what Jeroboam wants to do. He wants to compete in the God business. Set up a better, faster product. And so he sets up his own temple, his own priest, and his own festival. But what I want you to see here is, is to go to the next level. Because if we stay there at the obvious replacement, we can shake our hands and say, we're okay. We're in a church. I know it looks like a high school, but we're in a church. And we have a Bible. We're not replacing things. Look at all around us. We have hymnals. We have a prayer chain. But you see, the obvious replacement only comes about because of the not-so-obvious replacement. You see, these compromises that are set up are not just external. They reflect the heart. They are deliberate. It's not just the type of worship that he's trying to replace. He's trying to replace God. He doesn't need God. God's too intrusive. God will tell him what to do. He's got to keep commandments. He's got to keep statutes. He's got to do what the Lord says. He can't be his own man. And he wants to replace God. And I want you to see something here. It's actually quite humorous. If you look at verse 28, or excuse me, verse 31 and following, our author is having a bit of fun with Jeroboam. There's a Hebrew word that means to make. And it's translated here differently based on the context because it's a very general word. But I want you to hear what he's saying. He says, he also made temples on high places and appointed, again, priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed, using the word again, a feast on the 15th day. Next sentence. So he did in Bethel, same word. Sacrificing to the calves, he made, same word. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places he had made, same word. He went up on the altar that he had made, same word. And again, he instituted at the end, same word. Three verses, eight times. Yeah, you made it. Yeah, you go ahead and you make it. You go ahead and try and make it. You go right ahead. You think you know what you're doing. You make yourself a God. Can you almost hear the sarcasm dripping? God tells us through this story that he wants us. He doesn't want our externals. He doesn't want us to be in control. He wants us to trust him, to listen to him, to worship him. 
That is where safety and security is found. If Jeroboam would have realized that, he would have been king for much longer. And his dynasty would have lasted. This can be us, too, if we're not careful. We can invent our own religion, even our own God, because we think we need security. This is something that the church needs to come to grips with. There's a a relatively new song called, What If His People Prayed? And there's a couple of stanzas that I think are appropriate. It says, What if the life that we pursue came from a hunger for the truth? What if the family turned to Jesus and stopped asking Oprah what to do? What if the church, for heaven's sake, finally stepped up to the plate, took a stand upon God's promise, and stormed hell's rusty gates? Is that the kind of church you want to be? Reckless, knowing you are safe in the arms of the Lord? Going where He leads? You may not know where you're going, but you do know your guide. That is what this text tells us. To leave off control, to leave off contrivance, and to trust in the Lord, to push idolatry off from our hearts, and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now hear the Lord's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.